0: Hi, Nate. Hey, Tom. Sam Altman, CEO, pitches startups high and low. Investors say, "Whoa." <laughs> that's Let's a haiku. Oh, okay. that's we're a- just doing, we're doing poems and jokes
1: now. Nice. That was a good one. They do say, "Whoa." But you gotta watch out, they might be some, like, C-tier investors. So, um, welcome to The Retort. Today we're going to talk about OpenAI, because that's the thing to do this week. We'll start with the developer conference brief summary, technically, but really what it matters for AI. And, like, looking when you zoom out in a multi-year arc, what OpenAI doing this really means. And we'll just kind of get into our story time and brain dump with... OpenAI is the central theme for all the things that we've seen. OpenAI's story really evolved throughout the stories of our PhD. So we're kind of close at hand with all of this. So anything you want to add, Tom, before I do the quick technical summary? Because I was the boring person that actually watches the keynote live.
0: Right, I did not watch the keynote, but I have my own... History and thoughts on OpenAI, and also have some more alchemical thoughts to share about it, which we might get into in the natural course of things.
1: Yeah. So, getting into the developer day, this was their first developer conference, just kind of the way that I think it is a big deal is just like OpenAI is embracing being a consumer technology company now. I've heard rumors that Greg Brock- Brockman is really wants it to be, like, the next platform. Like, they want want to be a web company like Apple or Google with the App Store or whatever. And Greg is behind this. I, I would love to kind of see how these details emerge over time. The notion of a tech keynote as a thing in the Bay Area has a lot of history. It was really defined by, like, Steve Jobs as a character doing these live keynotes. Some things that come to mind are, like, he pulled the iPhone out of his pocket for the iPhone announcement. He pulled the MacBook Air out of the manila envelope when they announced that, like, all live, all on stage. And the opening AI keynote had some of that, where they're, like, doing live demos. It's on stage. Sam Altman, even though I find him to be, like, kind of a weird lizard creature, is endearing in a way. Like, he's not a bad presenter. Like, they put together a good keynote. Like. I'm kind of, like, inherently skeptical of OpenAI because of the positioning they hold. So I have to give them credit. Like, it's an interesting keynote, and it's a fun event to watch. And technically, I think a lot of researchers are kind of underwhelmed by the keynote, mostly because it seems like a decrease in velocity, because we're still, like, GPT-4 was such a huge step that presenting anything really was going to feel like a decrease in velocity, so you don't want to knock them for that. But the things that they kind of presented are, like, very clear statement on work. they were prioritizing price and then they're going to prioritize speed so the API from GPT-4 and a lot of other models produced a cost by a factor of two, this stuff matters they're going to do speed next and then they had a couple things on kind of like creating a mini app store like idea for GPT where people can create system prompts and examples and actually pay to train their own GPT models in a way that other people could then use them in a kind of store with a weird selector thing they said that they're going to do revenue share from the start but it's unclear of exactly like what is generating revenue from users if it's like the spotify model where they generate have a monthly fee and they get a proportion of that i don't think all of these details matter that much it's like this is the next step of something like plugins with is what they had before or just like the idea that you're the model can use APIs from kind of deterministic computers. If a language model is a probabilistic computer, and then get information from things like Wolfram Alpha, whatever. That's now in this kind of like the GPT notion. So you have like a Wolfram Alpha GPT. The demo they showed was really odd. They used like Zapier, which is a powerful workflow device, to then send a Slack message, and I was like. You can't use hmm. Slack to send a Slack. Like, hey, you just use a GPT for a Slack bot to send a Slack message. So I'm just kind of confused with that. But it worked live. I think the idea of aggregating demand. So, like, everyone knows ChatGPT, and that's where people go to first try AI broadly. That's the right way to create a platform with this. So, like, props for doing the basic things, right? They kind of said they want to do these things. They're doing them. The products are proceeding. There's some other stuff like agents that they're starting to do. A fun thing where they're like, "You can train models with us. You can fine-tune your version of GPT-4." But we're don't. <laughs> let's be clear, it's going to be expensive. Sam Walton saying that on stage is awesome, and the fine print is like, it'll cost about two to $3 dollars for you to fine-tune GPT-4 with OpenAI and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, which like that's that's a reasonable cost to me. Like people will probably do that. It's the perk of being the best. It's like they should capitalize while they can. So that's fine. I think it's good to kind of have a a, like a boring keynote in the bigger picture of AI, like it it didn't shake anyone's worlds and like get everyone all frustrated that like they're like transparency washing or bashing open source or anything like that. Like none of these major cultural flashpoints were really touched in the developer conference, which in the whole is like normalizing AI as products. That's kind of my take, but we'll see. It's like, it's, it will be interesting to see like what next year is like and who does all these things. It's like, there's a lot that will now unfold from here as product goals being much Normal to discuss.
0: I think we should get into the history of OpenAI a little bit more since you and I sort of came of age with it, if that's fair to kind of say. Uh, at the same time, that at least, it, let's say it was parallel, I guess. Uh, we were in the East Bay, you know, getting our PhDs while. OpenAI was in the, the West Bay, it's on the, it was in the city. Uh, you know, I, um, I've collaborated, I, I mean, my, yeah, my, I have a paper with a whole bunch of OpenAI people and affiliates on mechanisms for verifiable claims. It's a paper that is sort of arguing, how is it that you would hold, how is it that a company could hold itself internally accountable for certain either claims to capability or risks associated with those capabilities. This is ancient history. This was like 2018. <laughs> I think this paper was, was co-authored. Um, and it, it came out at a strange time and it It kind of happened at a moment in my PhD when I was still actively thinking through a lot of these issues. If I look now at what's happened over the last five years, and I think the last 12 months in particular, I find myself asking, you described yourself as skeptical of this company given its position. I might be more inclined to say that I'm cynical about it. The reason being that I, I generally interpret OpenAI as a company that's more interested in crafting the rules on top of which you can capitalize products than products. Do you
1: have any idea what the title of that paper is? We'll put a link in the show notes, but just, just show notes just
0: to know if I have, like, have an association with it, by the title. Oh, the one I mentioned on yeah. verifiable claims? Like i it up right now. Uh, um, I think a so lot of full-
1: people,
0: uh, to go on the cynical thing,
1: I think a lot of people in um, my half of the battle on AI have a cynical view of open AI, which I think kind of makes things harder. You know, like, a lot of the people are just doing open, be closed. We talked about this in the last episode for, like, open just as an alternative to open AI. Uh, like, I think a lot of that is based on cynicism. So it's like, I try to not, like I'm trying to like, be able to have part of myself be a fan of open AI because like they do so much cool things. And I think that to have an open mind, like you need to be able to have an open mind about that to truly like do analysis on where AI is going. And if you're just fully in the cynic camp, I think that you can kind of lose a grip for what they're actually doing and what they might not be doing.
0: So the title of the paper is Toward Trustworthy AI Development, colon. And then the subtitle is, I believe, Mechanisms for Supporting Verifiable Claims.
1: This is like the paper that came out from three policymakers this week. That was like about multinational AGI consortium, a design for... Um, like an AI summit <laughs> and it's just like when policy talk about things that are really governed by technical things. This paper with the acronym MAGIC was just getting dunked on, on Twitter so yeah. I don't think it was like... <laughs> like I don't think like,
0: that's... I take that... I mean as a co-author on this on the previous paper I do take that point. I think that the paper that I've been mentioning is not quite that egregious. But you are correct that there is now a cottage industry of papers that proposes, you know, mechanisms for governance that are either so far beyond anything that would actually be feasible that they only really exist as castles in the air and only ever will, or fundamentally misunderstand in the way that you're suggesting the technologically deterministic way in which certain governance patterns, forms, institutions are possible or not, meaningful or not. Um,
1: this came up when I was talking to Karen Howe, who's a contributor at the Atlantic right now, working on a book on OpenAI. And she said the mechanism in DCU is that OpenAI wrote this frontier model risks paper, and that's the only White paper that tells a coherent story about AI in the language that is addressable to policymakers. So that's now just what they know. And she, I mean, she was ultimately like, You should write some white papers. <laughs> like, we need people on the other side writing white papers or policymaker papers. And it's almost like I was like, oh, I wish our like, choices, risks, and reward reports paper was just a year or two later so we could have talked about language models. Cause I feel like that's almost what the alternate would be. From the space of language models is like what is the like good systems view of language models and how does that differ from the end of the world view
0: yes so i mean for the record yeah i mean i'm i'm all for white papers and i've myself been going to dc over the last few weeks to meet with a lot of congressional staffers and offices basically to how can i say this not write the ship exactly, but alert caucuses that matter and, you know, people in a position to actually possibly implement or at least consider policy, policy mechanisms, that there is a different story that could be told about this stuff. So that's a kind of a critique, I guess. It's critique not in a dismissive sense, and I guess it's not exactly a cynical sense, it's more just that OpenAI ha- is telling itself a story about what it's building, but there's really almost any number of other ways you could interpret even what they've already built, let alone what might be on the table. So- yeah. They're they're yeah. like the strongest political storyteller. Well, they're story. hegemonic. They're hegemonic, right? So what that means is to to be a hegemon, whether that means you know the United States, uh, in the world, or a company like OpenAI that's building AI, it means that you get to write the rules. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you have the biggest budget. It doesn't mean you. Have what the does hegemonic
1: actually mean? Is it like having a single? I, I associated it with having a single strong worldview, or. Is
0: it- uh, no, I'm I'm using it in a more specific. Um, well, I'm using it in the way that kind of Gramsci, who is a, a neo-Marxist uh, theorist, used the term and, th- and kind of fleshed it out. But a, a hegemon, to be a hegemonic power, it doesn't mean you have the most power in any particular engagement, right? Like imagine, imagine one country fighting another country and you can compare, who's go- it's like who's going to win, right? Um, Conventionally, the way you would answer a question like that is to say, who has the bigger army, right? Or who has the bigger economy or who has the larger just population or greater uh, labor productivity, right? These are all different metrics that may or may not matter. Who has better generals? Who has better strategy? These are all things that could matter for how it is battles would be fought, odds of success in any particular engagement and so on. But the way that If you think about that hegemonically, the the answer to that question is, who decides what victory means? Right. Who draws the boundary between success and failure in any particular engagement? Because if we're being honest or if we're really being reflective about the nature of any conflict, whether it's war, whether it's in a market, whether it's even even between factions in an office... uh, the hege- if, if there's a hegemon, what that means is that there is some agent in that environment that is not only able to defeat any other agent. It's able to manipulate the way that other agents understand themselves and can position themselves in that environment. And that's an extra, that's a particular kind of power. It's almost kind of mystical because it has the effect of as I've been indicating, rewriting the rules of the game if necessary on a whim. And so there's an element of arbitrariness to it, and that's, that's itself. What makes it so powerful is that the agent, whenever is hegemonic, is able, if it wants, to redefine conflict whenever it wants, if it ever finds itself to be threatened.
1: So if you're positing that Opening Eye is a hegemon right now, I also posit that their power is waning by nature of expanding too fast because of like a core feature of their growth and success has been kind of like the cult purge to belonging there. It's like people work in a pretty singular manner there based on their kind of values of engineering as a technical means for AI development and like very in-person, not quite the same like AGI interest of DeepMind I think if, if DeepMind is like the AGI interested people that are like the intellectuals it's like the like the 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 people who just want to build this shit and like get it out in the world Yeah, but I don't know if that comes from the low level I think that's what they kind of persuade people to be but the rate that which they're hiring I find that to almost the, the like cultural onboarding to be impossible like they've mm-hmm. been growing at such a high rate that is inevitable for things to slip through the cracks unless they are literally an actual cult doing like drinking Kool-Aid bloodletting nonsense, which I don't think they are. I just think that that is the line that a lot of companies cross and there is a culture shift. So somewhere in their processes, there's going to be a lessening of relative effectiveness. It might not be on the political front. like That stuff might say. It might be on the technical front that things slow down slightly. It might be somewhere else. I'm like willing to take that bet and see it play out over like like we might not see this for four years is the thing. It's just like a reality of businesses. It's like they're marginally slower in some ways than they were. They still might be faster than most places, but they're decelerating.
0: Yeah. Um, that Yeah, you may well be right. Um, doesn't I mean, it doesn't really I, matter if I'm right in that yeah, regard. <laughs> I mean, I guess full disclosure, our regular regular listeners will know. I mean, neither of us works for OpenAI. So, you know, we have varying degrees of friendships or access or, you know, awareness, but it's we're, we're neither of us. We don't speak for them. And um, we we have our, as I've been indicating, I think, at least personally for me, most of what I know about it comes from having in a sense, intellectually matured alongside it as it was coming up on, you know, in the world itself. In tandem with that, though, I have been reflecting on its earlier history. So I'm actually working on a paper on this right now. It's a collaborative paper, but we're kind of using OpenAI as a case study for these kind of gatekeeper tendencies that you've seen OpenAI kind of repeatedly play with over the course of its... Early history. So one example, Nate. I'm not sure if I know you know this, but you might have not recalled it recently. Is this this kind of big consternation that happened around when Chat GPT two? Sorry, not Chat GP, GPT. That wasn't just GPT two is what it was called. So GPT two was a language model that OpenAI uh, developed, and I believe they finished developing it in 2019, and In tandem with that, there was a blog post and sort of a series of statements on the part of OpenAI stipulating that having trained GPT-2 and experiencing exploring what it's capable of doing, that they believed it posed a safety risk such that they were going to intentionally delimit open access to this model, specifically by compelling outside researchers to apply through OpenAI directly in order to access its API.
1: Yeah, this is something that a lot of people don't know now because GPT-2 is openly available. It was not at the release. So people get confused in papers that analyze the release practices of models because they list GPT-2 as a gated access where now they're like, oh, it's open source, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that's kind of, like, uh, they set the trend with GPT-2 that we're seeing in a lot of different places now.
0: Right. So I remember at the time a lot of AI researchers being kind of either uncomfortable at them doing that or just kind of pissed uh for the reason that and I'm 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 speaking specifically about certain members and factions if that's maybe not quite the right word but a certain wing of the AI safety community was rather intensely annoyed that OpenAI did that cuz was it like you're not allowed to make that call or was it like, I mean, yes, that was basically my read of it. Is I mean, charitably, I think it was two things. One was they were aware that every indicator of GPT-2 was that, although it was impressive, it was really just sort of on a par with what was state-of-the-art at the time. And arguably, in some ways, like not quite bleeding edge. So they thought it was a little bit of pulling rank on OpenAI's part to sort of misrepresent. In other words, I mean, kind of frankly, to kind of lie about exactly how impressive GPT-2 was relative to what at the time were comparable models. And the second thing, which is maybe more, maybe more what you were getting at, is that they were concerned that this was going to create an inconsistent or problematic set of norms around how it is safety risks can even be evaluated, determined, and handled. They, they kind of felt like there was a context collapse happening where OpenAI not only took it upon itself to train a model and misrepresent, possibly like exaggerate its capabilities, but on top of that set this very powerful precedent for how any company, now or in the future, should approach when safety risks are at stake, what good or appropriate policy should be. Um, Yeah, and so I, I remember these conversations happening. I remember representatives from OpenAI Uh, having views uh, defending what they were trying to do. I believe the line at the time was that they themselves were kind of figuring this out as they went and that they were trying to invite a conversation around these norms, uh, but erring on the side of caution. Anyway, it got very muddled very quickly. And we've seen subsequently, of course, uh, you know, last November, the kind of dropping of chat GPT, Uh, where you have this, you know, even much more capable, updated version uh, of a language model, uh, paired with this incredibly intuitive, sexy interface that I often compare to like what AOL Instant Messenger felt like, you know, back in the like late nineties, that's kind of meant not just to make it easy to use the model, but kind of to make you feel like you're talking to something. There, there's just lots of features of the interface that have nothing to do with the model, but that simulate what it's like to talk to somebody online. And, you know, that's even beyond what they did with GPT-2. There's a similar, I think, partly intentional, partly not even intentional way in which OpenAI has positioned itself, not just in a market, but by virtue of being able to create models of this scale, just instantiate norms around what the public can reasonably expect or not expect from systems of a certain caliber at a given moment in time.
1: To be clear, we think they jumped the gun on GPT 2, right? Okay.
0: <laughs> like,
1: in terms of not releasing it, like, we're at Lava 2, and I don't think there's any really big risks to. Like, you can do a lot with Llama 2 and it makes problems in the internet much harder to deal with. But it's not unlocking any new problems that we know about in cybersecurity or anything. So, like, not releasing GPT-2 is like, okay, um, let's, like, surely they jump. Do you agree?
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I think I do. I actually was going to make a stronger claim myself, which is that what I remember that when that happened, right? And, and what it told me then and what on reflecting on it now, I still feel maybe even more strongly. And this is, I think, why I feel kind of cynical rather than just skeptical, is that I think that some of the people at that company or who admire that company, who think of themselves as AI safety researchers or who care about safety. The thing is no one really knows when these really kinds of existential risk level runaway safety concerns are going to manifest or how far away we are from that and i have evidence for that which is whenever people get nervous about a model they're kind of wrong about it like it comes out and they're like, oh, we, we, we need to handle this in a certain way. It's like, actually, you didn't really need to handle it that way because what you thought would happen didn't happen. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other reasons why that model either was way not as dangerous as you thought or your hypotheses about the danger are predicated on lots of other suppositions that are either just incorrect or unverifiable.
1: Yeah, I mean, this release document is that I, I pulled up the blog post and it says, this is from 2019 it says, due to concern about LLMs being used to generate descriptive deceptive bias or abusive language at scale, we're only releasing a much smaller version of GPT-2 with inference code. We're not releasing the dataset, right. training code, or GPT-2 to full model weights blah blah blah, we wrote a year ago in the OpenAI Charter we want to be really safe I, I that wasn't the quote and we see this current work as potentially representing the early beginnings of such concerns which we expect to grow over time this is an experiment they say while we are not sure that it was the right decision today yeah it wasn't we believe that like so that that is really what they said but it's just like not even like not even releasing the training code is so funny it's
0: so naive that like (laughs) <laughs> like, it's naive. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think the word is naive, and I think that critical fact, critical parts of the safety community, are basically they were and they remain very naive about how power works, social power, and I think in kind of what I've been indicating here, I think the way hege- hegemony works in markets, which is that. Uh, In the name of safety, a company can just position itself as a monopoly. And it doesn't really matter if it's justified or not. And it ends up actually, so far as we know, not being very well justified. Because so far as we know, nothing they've built is existentially risky in anything like the way those thought experiments would point to. So, um, frankly, I don't really see... Do we even have indication that the people... Who really are in charge of that company? Like, care about safety? Like Who would it be? Like, is what? it Sam? Sam? Is I it mean. Greg? Is it
1: Ilya Sitskevich? Like, some of them have signed these open letters, but like, they're not. I mean, we. I don't know. I don't. I mean. <laughs> Like, I don't know if they are on the record for a long time. I don't. My hunch is to say that I don't think so, but that could just be me being biased or wrong. They're not as vocal about it as a lot of people. Like, there's people on Twitter now that I know and kind of respect that say way more AI safety things
0: all the time than these people ever have. I mean, words are words, actions are actions. I think I'm more pointing out the discrepancy there. Isn't there, what was this that happened a few weeks ago where OpenAI just sort of completely refabricated their values. Like, their, their corporate values just sort of changed to be like, we care about safety vibes. Safety's more <laughs> of a vibe than it is a commitment. Didn't I say, didn't I say this, pre- or were we just talking about this, the two of us, where OpenAI, when it was founded, there was a, an explicit commitment that if another company was closer to AGI than it, then they would stop and they would join that other company. Because that's yeah. how strongly they I cure. think we were discussing, but okay. it's an important thing for people to know. I, it's it's I think kind the of fact, the most important part of this whole charade. I mean, it was key. I remember when OpenAI was announced. And it, it was very well publicized. And just consider now how different, even as an outsider, the culture of that company obviously is from that that level of... Of commitment. Do you right.
1: know if Anthropic has that commitment?
0: I don't know if it has that. Commitment.
1: But, but like the the, the short of the street is like Anthropic left because they were thinking that OpenAI was not doing safety right and not do, as in not doing enough of it. Right. Yeah. So it's we've, like if they heard, left right. with that, they probably should kind of have that bias internally.
0: I think we've both heard stories to that effect. Yeah, I, I I, honestly don't know the details beyond just the yes. We what is known, of course, is that OpenAI, or sorry, that Anthropic was founded. It was co-founded by um, a mix of uh, sort of you could you could sort of say like somewhat more hardcore. It's kind of like heavy metal bands or something. <laughs> somewhat more hardcore safety enthusiasts, researchers, scientists, uh I, I would even go so far as to say people with more even more of an EA bent um yeah. who were not satisfied with the idea of safety as a vibe and they wanted sub- their their notion of what substantive safety would mean. And that 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 that's what that's among other things would factor into their leaving an AI. Um, I will say I do have a bit of a gossipy story about Sam Altman. Would it be fun if I Yeah,
1: I think we're at the the point where only
0: committed people are still
1: here.
0: It's it's a reward. (laughs) So a couple... I think this was a couple years ago. It wasn't that long ago. I was in a coffee shop in San Francisco uh, because I had a meeting later that afternoon nearby, but I just happened to stop off at this coffee shop. And I had with me a copy of a book called The Passions and the Interests, which is an intellectual history economic theory by albert hirschman which is which incidentally is a brilliant book uh that i think people in ai should read because it's about the history of preferences and the history of kind of how it is people want things versus versus desiring things versus you know like how important is it to you that france be a country and its own country versus that you get you know baguettes that are like (laughs) <laughs> fresher than some other bakery or things like that so it's a brilliant book but anyway i was reading this book i was rereading the book actually in this cafe and i noticed next to me in this cafe <laughs> this is such a san francisco story uh someone was reading the book white fragility which i think had just <laughs> come out like a year before oh yeah that, those books really had a huge right wave exactly years so if I, read I, a, which, I mean,
1: I read a couple.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, I've also, I mean, yeah. So I, I saw this guy reading this book. I think he approached me first and said, that's an interesting book. What's it about? And I said something like, oh, yeah, it's this like kind of intellectual history of yada yada. He was like, wow, that sounds heavy. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually just reading it because I work on AI, or I work on AI governance type stuff. And I think these ideas are actually really... Important and he was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah. And I said, Yeah, you know, I don't know if you've heard of this like X risk, kind of existential <laughs> risk type stuff. And he was like, he was like, Yeah, I uh yeah, I'm actually quite uh familiar <laughs> with this stuff. So we just start chatting about it, and then he finally says, Um, do you know Sam Altman? And I say, Not personally, but I know who that is. He's quite important. <laughs> Uh, in the, I mean, he's been, he was also, you know, he was very involved in my Combinator, of course. But yeah, he's also like, yeah, basically running open AI. And he was like, yeah, I um, spot him at the gym. <laughs> so
1: well, this, this is guy is taking a great turn. I'm glad Sam Altman works out, but billionaires know how to take care of
0: themselves. This guy claimed, I mean, he claimed that Sam Altman regularly met with him at the gym when he was, you know, bench pressing and otherwise, you know, needed somebody spotting when he's doing that stuff for strength and conditioning. Did you ask
1: him for the numbers um, when he was benching? I would have I immediately asked <laughs>
0: Uh, that's interesting. That's the difference between you and me. I think I just was sort of amused by the fact that this was happening. And then I was either talking to somebody who had that like intimate knowledge of Sam Altman or was a sociopath who claimed to have that knowledge. And so either way, I just was enjoying that. And, Um, I sort of, I think I sort of said something like, oh, what's he like in person? And what he said was, he never lifts as much as he thinks he can. (laughs) And as much as he says he can.
1: Well, oh, says versus thinks, it's very
0: different. He said, he, he, he said that he always says he can lift more than he does, I guess. Yeah. So he wasn't a claim about his interstates. So I apologize for that, but he this guy sort of expressed some amusement mixed with frustration, which kind of makes sense because yeah, if you're spotting a guy and he and he's misrepresenting what he can bench, that is kind of annoying, I guess, because um, it was I, I sensed it was kind of a chronic thing <laughs> with Sam. Um, but anyway, we, we, we chatted about that a little bit and it was kind of funny. And he gave me, he gave me his copy of White Fragility. He's like, I actually don't like this book. He just like, I don't really want to read more of it. So I actually read it after that. Um, and, uh, so that was just my one in with this guy. So whatever that tells you about, about Sam Altman that, um, yeah, that, you know, there is a personality type here that is, um, you know, it's, it's a bit odd, I also remember calling into This was oh dang I forget the name of this app. There was some um, Clubhouse? Sh- yes. Oh, that's right. I miss Clubhouse. What happened to it? Died It died. Okay. People did so, people didn't stick. It had no okay. stickiness. I remember when it was it launched and it was new. It was like a COVID thing. I think it was probably like It was like, great. It was like yeah. Honestly, it felt like it was as big as ChatGPT was, and then it just died. <laughs> COVID was a weird time. Yeah. Um, but I remember being on it once, and Sam Altman was leading some kind of invite-only conversation about AI, as you, as you do. As, as he does. As he does. As he does. And I remember at some point he said let's just take things back to college. Let's just sit down on the dorm room floor and eat some pizza and talk about consciousness. <laughs> I mean, like, this checks to, out. This yeah. it was. It was just very, like... How can I describe it? It was just very vibey. It was very much just... And again, that's part of the charm, I guess, is that somebody who's in such a position, you know, presents themselves as being so... So relatable. But I think that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here is, um, it, it, you know, it's interesting. It's hard to imagine Steve Jobs ever doing something like that. Um, you mentioned the kind of, I don't know if you use the term reality distortion field, but yeah, Steve Jobs was famous for it kind of revolutionizing the keynote, not as kind of just fake corporate speak, but as this almost, um, transformative experience of being in this room where this person before you is kind of like this John the Baptist type figure of what technology can bring and make possible for people. And it's like
1: like a hegemon is probably structurally trained to be good at keynotes. It's like they've been telling this story the whole time.
0: Well... Yes, I do think that, and there's, and there's a reason why, I mean, like, social scientists consider um, hegemons to be the way in which, I mean, the, the, if I really wanted to be Marxist about it, to be a hegemon means that you can coerce people on, on terms that they consent to. That's kind of the analytic definition that some sociologists use to describe hegemony. Consent to coercion to being coerced. So yes, in the sense that kind of almost against your own will or regardless of it, you are being fed a narrative that having been fed it, you can no longer think outside of its boundaries or its terms, then yeah, the keynote and specifically the Steve Jobs reality distortion field variety of it is sort of Silicon Valley's version of what hegemony feels like uh, when you're experiencing it, I still think, though, I'm not sure I can say this in an, in a fully articulate way. I might have to ponder it more deeply. The way in which Steve Jobs did that stuff strikes me as different than the way Sam Altman does this stuff, and for reasons that seem to matter. You yeah. know. It,
1: yeah. You're I can say little, more about that. You're getting a little bit of, like, like uh, static, which you've had once before. So I don't know if you want to, like, unplug it or plug it back in. Or if you just oh, wrap it up am I? soon. It just started. But, yeah, Steve Jobs had it on a whole other level. It's a good for people to go and watch things that Steve Jobs was renowned for. So, like, some of his famous keynotes. And, like, he has given commencement addresses that are well-known. And I think it's generally like a deeper level of charisma that Sam doesn't really have. It's like there is just so there is more gravity with Steve Jobs. I don't think that's the point of the podcast, but I agree.
0: I think to put it briefly, and hopefully the statics not too bad. The difference for me is kind of partly ideological, which is Steve Jobs always interpreted and presented technology as something that humanized people and made people more connected with what they wanted to do, right? Just think about Apple. Just think yeah, about
1: and what... and like fund a fundamental way. And not like it, what the customer wants way. like, Like in a deep, like, what does it mean to like have technology that integrates with humans? And knowing that the vast majority of people, when you ask them this, will tell you the wrong answer.
0: There was always this... Zen and the the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance kind of spirit to everything Steve Jobs did, right? I think the Stanford commencement address is like the distillation of that, right? Yeah. Um, Technically not a keynote, but I think illustrative of what makes... what made Steve Jobs' brand fundamentally, yeah, different than what we're seeing now. Because he talks in that speech about the whole Earth catalog. And the profundity of the Whole Earth Catalog as a kind of, I think he describes it as an offline version of the internet. It was sort of like the version of the internet if you could have imagined it existing in 1968 or something like that. It was a catalog where, a literal catalog, where hobbyists could look up how to do and make all sorts of things, kind of like whatever it is you would have wanted to make or tinker with. And, what steve jobs always said apple was trying to do was make technology that fit seamlessly into your life and made your life live up to what you've always wanted your life to be right um and what OpenAI is doing now and what it's been doing for the last several years frankly is pretty different than that and also marketed different. They're
1: trying to embrace that but the question is can you do that while still being the kind of political hegemon that it is? I'm just kind of using the word for thematically, it might not be precise, but like Apple is pretty politically neutral in this. It's like they're just trying to build the things. OpenAI is trying to build these things and simultaneously define whether or not it is okay to do so. And I think that conflict is, that might be the difference that we're getting at between Stam and Steve at that. Well part. because
0: Steve because Steve was a holistic thinker and innovator and designer. And OpenAI is analytical. It carves things up. Like when you the word to be analytical, to analyze literally means to separate. And not to put too fine a point on it, but that's kind of all that OpenAI ever does. It just does it first and better than any other company. Whether that's delimiting access whether that's now proposing markets on top of their own platform, whether that's, right, it's, this is a fundamentally different game than the holistic design and ambitions. Like, cause what's the essence of Apple? It's probably the 84 Super Bowl ad. Uh, I don't even know, Nate, if you've seen it. I don't this, know. But it's, it's one of the most famous television ads ever. It was directed by Ridley Scott. And it's a parody of the novel 1984, sorry, not a parody, it's kind of an enactment, it's an adaptation of the novel 1984, where a woman, I guess this is technically a spoiler, we'll put a link in the notes, a woman throws a, a sledgehammer at the image of Big Brother. And that's supposed to be like what Apple, that's supposed to be what the Macintosh was. Like the Macintosh is literally the thing that breaks down... Barriers and rules, and it just—it just destroys totalitarian control by virtue of just existing. Isn't is great? <laughs> and I just want—I want. I mean, think of how I'm not. Think of how opposite that is. Just think of how opposite that sentiment is to the story that we're now being told about safety and the kinds of rules that are now being proposed, either by countries or just by these companies nominally on behalf of our own interests to delimit access and ensure control. Apple is the most anti-control brand that exists probably in the entire Western world. So uh, there's just-
1: They were. <laughs> we don't well, need to die. They were. Yeah, I, well, I like I,
0: Apple's different now. Watch the ad. I'm I'm, st- I'm talking about the ad. I'm not talking oh, yeah. about the actual workings of these companies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think I, it's important now. Exactly what that means, I think, is an open question. But it's important. It's it's something worth pondering. I'm still I'm still pondering it myself.
1: Anyway, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Or we can have you. I'd replug re your audio. You'll see how much of that gets filtered out in post. I think it's okay. It was it really was just like the last five minutes. On the end note, I will leave people with career advice that I was getting since 2020, kind of before it was obvious. It's like, if you want to be an individual, don't go work at OpenAI. Also, it's not that fun. <laughs> people were telling me that, and I was like, oh, thank you. They never gave a lot of reasons, but now it kind of tracks, and it's okay if you want to go. I'm sure it's fun to work there. It's extremely relevant, but I just thought it was a good joke. So, thanks for listening. Send us your chat gpt four turbo one twenty eight k context system prompt GPT market links, so we can take some of that revenue share, and have a great weekend. <laughs>
0: See you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Right.